Welcome to the Edify Podcast, where our guests share practical wisdom on living our faith in public. I'm Mary Fiorito. Thank you for joining us today. Our guest today is Jeannie Mancini, the president of the March for Life. Jeannie, welcome. Oh, Mary, thanks so much for having me. Such a joy to have you, and I know this is a very busy time of year for you. What number will the 2023 March be? 50th annual March for Life. Right, because it tracks with the Roe versus Wade decision. Tell me a little bit about the history. How did how did the march start? So, of course, Roe came down January 22nd, 1973. And the following October, Nellie Gray, the founder of the March for Life, gathered other pro-life leaders in her townhouse on Capitol Hill. And they talked about how they didn't want that anniversary to go unmarked. And so they they essentially planned the first March for Life. They thought, Mary, it would be like a one-off or a two-off event because they absolutely expected the horrific decision to be corrected quickly within a year or two. Um, So she had no idea at that point that she was starting um, to plan what would become the world's largest, longest-running human rights demonstration. And um, so here we are. 50 years later, and um, thanks be to God, the first post-Roe march will be this January. Yeah, N- Nellie Gray was a force of nature. I had the privilege of meeting her a couple of times, and it's amazing what you know what one person can do when they've got that kind of determination and commitment. But I do remember her saying one time, you know, exactly what you just mentioned, that they really thought this was going to be just a few years, and once everybody understood the science... Um, of the humanity of the unborn child, everyone would just come to their senses and, you know, this would go away very quickly and the American people wouldn't embrace it. And that's unfortunately the exact opposite happened, you know, despite the science. But it's it's a terrific event. I always tell anyone who's never been, you know, please put it on your Catholic bucket list or your pro-life bucket list, whichever one you have, and make sure that you go because it's one of the most, I mean, you're marching for a very kind of sad reason, right, about unborn children being killed in the womb, but it's one of the most joyful events that you can that you can attend in, in the pro-life movement. Yeah, there is an irony. It, exactly what you just said. Like there's this the the sadness, the the somberness of the fact that we've lost, you know, over 60 million lives and that we we are in a culture of walking wounded. That, you know, and of course anyone listening to your podcast should always know that there's hope and healing if they've been involved in an abortion. It's so important to, to spread that message. So yes, and yet this ironic um, and beautiful joy. And I think that that is in large part because we uh, are young people. I mean, at the March, I'd say like a good 80% are millennials or younger, and they know that this is the human rights issue of today. And so they, they are doing everything possible to bring an end to that. And they're so you know, enthusiastic and, and they, they lack the cynicism of some of us who have a few more decades on us here on this earth. And there's just such a contagious sort of ah, just a, a happiness, a deep, peaceful happiness of the marchers. Yeah. You know, I know someone who has a friend who works for the Capitol Park Service and the Capitol Police who said it's the only kind of demonstration like that, that you have all year where the people actually put like they don't leave garbage on the ground. There's not, everybody is polite. There's like never any arrests or very rarely. Um, but that he really commented on the way people like cleaned up after themselves. He said, you know, they, if you drop something, somebody picks it up and puts it in a garbage can. And apparently that is not the norm. Um, you can just get into a group of people and, you know, you'll have new friends for life, basically, if you don't know them. It's, it's, 
it's like a big family event, you know? It is. And, and Mary, even right before we got on this podcast, I was on a call with the Capitol Police. So just, just an hour ago, I was. And they've never worked with an organization that's done 50 of these events. And we've never had a, a major issue ever. Uh, and I think that's because, you know, God protects us. And but we just have such good people that are there that that, you know, they're there because they respect the inherent dignity of the human person and they treat everyone that way. Not perfectly because none of us are perfect, but it's it's truly a magnificent event. Well, and, you know, you see so much prayer as part of it, too. Um, you know, people walking and praying, people walking and singing hymns. Some of the masses that occur around the March for Life and some of the, you know, the different rallies with adoration and what have you are so incredibly moving. But here's the thing is Catholics, you know, everything begins there, obviously. It's like the, the spiritual part, the adoration, the, the liturgy, the, the prayer, the fasting, That is the most important part, but it doesn't end there. It ends with the public witness. And so that's really what this is. But I mean, even me, the president of the March for Life, I know that the most important part is that prayerful presence first and foremost. And so, you know, get to your masses, folks, offer the prayers and sacrifices and then come and witness. And I think that's really what leads to the joy and what leads to the peace. As someone who's gone to the march, gosh, I think 25 years in a row now, um, what impact do you think over the course of the 50 years we've been doing this, what impact has it had, practically speaking? I mean, I, I occasionally would get into discouragement, you know, um, thinking here, all of us are here. No media will cover this. You know, here we are en masse and um, invariably. I mean, last year this happened, right? When there was a report on CBS News that said that hundreds of us were there. Um, and you just look at the time-lapse video that I think Priest for Life put together, and it's it's clear there are tens of thousands of people and hundreds of people. And this happens every year. First of all, I'd like to know how you deal with that frustration just as somebody who has put this together, how you deal with that. And then, you know, tell me a little bit about any stories you know or anecdotes that, that explain the impact that the march has had. Yeah. So first, we... Uh Back, okay, so I started working with March for Life in 2012. And one of the first decisions that we made was to hire a media firm around the time of the March for Life to open wide the doors to the media. Because in fairness, Nellie hadn't been favorable towards the media, and that's completely understandable. But we have seen a pretty big increase in media coverage in the last 10 years. Um, But no, it's not equal coverage. So we have also seen if there's, you know, a different kind of rally the next day with like a thousand people in DC that gets more coverage. So, but I've seen it come pretty long and far and we work very hard on that. I spend a fair bit of my time doing media interviews and meeting with reporters and what have you, because we think that nothing tells a story better than, you know, photos of the young marchers or, or little videos of the young marchers or videos of our rallies, um, etc. As to the question of what kind of impact, I mean, really only God knows, but uh, two things come to mind. One is, you know, Roe was overturned on Nellie's birthday. June 24th was Nellie Gray's birthday, the founder of the March for Life. And I do believe, Mary, uh, and I say this with a lot of humility because I've been helping with the march for just a little bit and we have a great staff and I know it's it's God's work, even though we're inherently non-sectarian as an organization. But uh, 
I think that the marchers had a role, a big role in overturning Roe. And what I mean by that is, and by the way, we know that there are at least 100,000 that come about every year. and We've got good you know, calculations to help us figure that out. So we can push back on the media when they, they question that. Um, but uh, I can't think of a more powerful statement over these last years leading up to June that Roe was not a settled law than the, the hundreds of thousands of people crossing the Supreme Court every single year. So, you know, not a year or two after those decisions were made, but like 49 years later and, and just growing every single year. And I've heard from friends that have clerked for the Supreme Court that that is a very powerful day. They're very aware inside the court of what's happening. I mean, no question about that. So I believe that the march has led to the overturn of Roe. I also think, you know, we hear this phrase, culture is upstream of politics, and we know that our loftiest goal is changing hearts and minds. So we march until the day when abortion is unthinkable. And I believe that our themes every year have had an impact and our messaging, which is really grounded in love. Um, I think that's had an impact. So, you know, some of the themes over the years, and we, we try to pick what's most pressing in terms of what's needed in a culture of life. So pro-life is pro-science was one year. Um, a few years, we've had a very pro-woman theme. Adoption is a noble decision one year, which kind of getting at um, why a woman would choose abortion over choosing to be a birth mother. So um, so I do think that we've had an impact on changing hearts and minds as well. And then more recently, our impact is at the states as we've grown our march five years ago to take it to the states. And now we plan in the next five to seven years to be in all 50 states. And that's increasingly important given the overturn of Roe. Right. Everything's shifting now to the state legislatures. I know in, in Chicago, we have a very big March for Life every year, um, but that's now moving to Springfield, which is where our state capital is. We need to be where the legislators are. That's that's a very good point. And, you know, to your point about um, not really understanding uh, right now, at least until the Lord reveals it to us, the impact that any of the small acts that people did, the March, not a small act, obviously, um, one of my friends who was a Supreme Court clerk, I asked him um, after Dobbs came down, you know, what he thought. And he said, oh, that, that's my mom and her friends after the 730 mass at my parish every morning for the last 20 years. They do a rosary to end abortion. I mean, he just said it, it's all these collective acts of love that and prayer and sacrifice and fasting that the whole movement has done over the years. My husband compared it. You know, he said it's like that game Jenga and we have to pull the blocks out one by one. And he said you know, somebody just pulled out the right block and the whole house of cards that Roe was came down. And I thought that was a wonderful analogy because a year ago, you know, I don't know that I was very hopeful. This was God at work with all these different things happening. And, you know, there were so many things that led up to it, but I couldn't agree more. Well, so what is the theme? You, you mentioned the themes of previous marches. What is the theme of this year's march? There's so much misinformation since Roe's been overturned. And what does that exactly mean? And what does it mean, you know, moving forward and all these different things? So is there still a federal role, et cetera, et cetera? So the theme is next steps marching into a post-Roe America. Wonderful. Wonderful. What's, what has your experience been like, though, as the president of the March for Life since, since June 24th? Um, what has this year must have been just extraordinary for you in terms of your work? Yeah, I would say some really high highs and some really low lows. 
Um, just it's been incredible to see sort of the earthquake of Roe being overturned and how there's been so much disinformation, you know, spread out there, whether it's about ectopic pregnancies um, and receiving like health services after that or um, or during during an ectopic pregnancy or miscarriages and um, and so much cultural backlash. But then on the other hand, just so much joy that we have gotten to this point where there can be more freedom and the states have so much more freedom, but yet there is still this federal role. A lot of confusion over the need to still march at a federal level um, and what the federal level still means now, you know, whether it's the Hyde Amendment or, um, you know, whether fighting Women's Health Protection Act, et cetera, et cetera. There's still a battle at both levels, right? What really surprised me was just the level of rage um, that that was, it was really something. I mean, I know there's a big spiritual component to that. More than a hundred Catholic churches, I think, have been desecrated or vandalized and barely a blip of media coverage of that. And then, of course, it's so interesting, the two places that have been the most victimized in the wake of Dobbs with violence and threats, et cetera, have been our pregnancy resource centers and Catholic churches. So very interesting um, that that is where like the devil has focused his efforts. And it does, you know, to me, it's, it's just proof positive. These are the things that we should be doing prayer, right. And, and direct assistance to moms and their babies. Yep. Um, Because that's what, you know, undoes the culture of death. So, um, you know, I, I was, it was really beautiful. Last year, I know you had um, kind of a very special speaker and that was Katie Shaw, who's a Down syndrome advocate, a woman, uh, with Down syndrome, I've, I've had the pleasure of meeting in person. She's just a lovely, lovely soul and so articulate about her her own value as a human being. And I just love that uh, the march included her in that, in your often and always impressive lineup of speakers, um, <laughs> that, that Katie had a spot. What led you to choose her? And what do you think the impact of her presence among people was? She got a huge standing ovation, if I recall correctly. She did. And I have to say, she was such a, she's such a self-confident young woman. I'd asked her in advance, well, Katie, would you like me to come and stand next to you? And she's like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Why would I need that? I know. On her own. She didn't, she wasn't intimidated by the hundreds of thousands of people that she'd be speaking to. She was so energized by it. Well, really, what led us to it, I, uh, I mean, she just embodies the culture of life in this attractive way. And that's, we try to really discern and find people who do that and who speak to the crowds. And um, I, I mean, that that's really what drew us to her. But um, we plan to continue, you know, showcasing different faces of the, the pro-life movement like Katie. And, and we know that the percentage of Down syndrome children who are aborted um, is is very high, is sadly, tragically high. As high as 80%. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, you know, Iceland has has bragged about eradicating Down syndrome and what they really mean is aborting, aborting, you know, most of the, like almost all of the babies who have Down syndrome. It's just horrific. I mean, these people have just as much human dignity as we do. It's just, it's such a a wrong-minded understanding of what it means to be human. Cardinal George, who was my my boss, uh, for lack of a better word, and my archbishop at the Archdiocese of Chicago, he was saying to me, you know, Mary, all a child with Down syndrome knows how to do is love. All they do is love other people. And I just thought that was such a beautiful way because they have um, they have such a joy about them. You know, yes. um, I think that's a real gift that that 
that extra chromosome brings. Um, and not that there's not challenges. Um, certainly there are health challenges Absolutely. and developmental challenges that have to be met. But, you know, that's, I think the way we treat people with Down syndrome and other disabilities is kind of a mirror to us as a society Completely of who we are right. and what we value. When you see the, the commitment and the money that's and the energy that's devoted to abortion, that's not a coincidence that we are so eager to fund and support abortion and so disinclined to support people with special needs. You know, I do think it's a reflection of who we are as a people is the way you treat people who are special and vulnerable and have, you know, different abilities. It's almost like that extra chromosome brings extra joy. And there's a, a researcher in from Harvard, I think it's Dr. Brian Scottco, and he's done all sorts of surveys of families um, with a child with Down syndrome. And we can actually say uh, that objectively speaking, those families are happier. They, they self-identify as having um, more fulfillment and happiness, including teenagers of, who are siblings um, and people with Down syndrome themselves who, who he has surveyed. So uh, it, it is ironic how you'll often hear this, quote unquote, quality of life argument that really when you drill down, I mean, what we're seeing is that these are very happy families and very happy people. My roommate from college has a little boy with Down syndrome who's just adorable. And, you know, you talk to Down syndrome parents and they say, no, I wouldn't trade him or her because the, the happiness and the joy and the love that, you know, they, they bring to our family. And I love now too, that we see some mainstream television shows called the midwife has a character with down syndrome. Yes. I love that show. And I love that character. <laughs> it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And it just, it's realistic, but it's not patronizing. And it's, it, it shows the realism on both sides. Yes. You know, it can be a challenge to, to parent a child, but on the other hand, there's these gifts that come with it. It's about all human life and protecting the unborn, but also the most vulnerable among us. So um, I don't know if you are familiar with uh, Jim Harbaugh, but he is the head football coach at the University of Michigan and the former quarterback for the Chicago Bears. He said, every year I tell all my players and I tell our staff, the entire staff, which is University of Michigan is huge, right? That if anyone gets pregnant unexpectedly or gets someone pregnant, and you don't feel like you can raise a child, my wife and I will do that. We have a big, he said, we have a pretty big house. I can take it. It was the most beautiful thing and very heartfelt. Um, I love that because it's such a, you know, um, I think inspiration, especially to young men, you know, in high school and college. One of the saddest things I think I've seen post-Dobbs was uh, something, an interview with Vice President Kamala Harris, where she said she was speaking to a group of women and particularly emphasizing what might happen to their sons if they have to support a baby that they've helped to create, you know, and, and all negative, of course, you know, and think, think what this will mean. Your son could be straddled with, you know, child support payments for 18 years. And it was, I thought, is this really where we are as women now, right? We want more irresponsible men. Like this is, what are, what are you saying? I, I was absolutely aghast, but this is, this is an argument that's being used to kind of bring along men, right? Like if, if abortion is not legal, then you're going to get saddled with this kid. Gosh, I'm just reminded to pray for, um, for our vice president. Her heart is so wrong on this issue. And yeah. I mean, in every, every possible direction, going back to the David Delighted videos when she was attorney general in California, but, um, but boy, is she, um, you know, she's got this one wrong. So we just need to pray and fast for conversion of her heart. 
Well, you know, truthfully, she has. And this administration has been, um, they have been so aggressively pro-abortion. They are not pro-choice. They are aggressively pro-abortion. And they, it's, it's one of these things where not only do they want it to be legal, they want the taxpayers to pay for it. They want it to be considered healthcare when, you know, most OBGYNs won't even go near the procedure. Um, and they turn a blind eye to the damage that I think it, it does to the American psyche, you know, because we're, we are a country that, you know, was founded on people, um, not just being free, but being free to choose good things, free to choose the good, like St. Augustine would say, right? That's true freedom. And yes. they just take that that notion and distort it um, to the nth degree. So again, a nation, well, Mother Teresa said this, right? A nation that kills its unborn children it does, you know, needs to be very careful of what they're doing because that doesn't invite God's blessings for sure. So, um, well, just as, as we close up here, um, Jeannie, one of my favorite things to do when I go to the March every year is to find the really cute, clever, funny signs. People make all these wonderful homemade signs and get pictures of them and post them. Do you have, what are a couple of your favorite signs that you've seen? I mean, I don't even know if I can choose. I think I do have one favorite, but um, they're always different. And these young people just come up with such, you know, fun, creative things. So, Probably, I mean, it's really simple, but maybe something along the lines of social justice begins in the womb, something along those lines. I love the ones that have like Susan B. Anthony's, you know, picture, or Elizabeth Cady Stanton's picture, you know, the early founding feminists who were so pro-life um, and quotes from Abraham Lincoln. And it's just really beautiful when you see these, you know, these the, the founding people in our country who we, we so, you know, associate with good and fairness and justice that they also had inclinations very much in favor of protecting the unborn child. So my favorite last year was my unplanned pregnancy is now a sophomore at Stanford. Oh, that's a good one. Well, I'm I'm trying to think of something clever to do myself, but I I haven't. Um, Well, Jeannie Mancini, it has been a pleasure talking to you about this year's March for Life, and I'll look forward to seeing you there. And God bless you and everything you're doing. It's a momentous uh, undertaking. And uh, the pro-life community as a whole is just so grateful to you. We know so much goes into what you're doing and so much small detailed work. Oh, thank you so much. I'm such a fan of everything you do, Mary, and of Edify. I'm so grateful. I mean, for all that you guys are doing for your podcast, for the videos that you put out and for your support of all the good work, you know, the March for Life and different organizations. So God bless you. And thank you so much. Well, thank you. We're all just doing our part, right? Amen. Thank you for listening. To make it easier for you to listen to future Edify podcast episodes, please make sure you subscribe over at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you.